so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners, uh, first-timers, and those who have been joining us through this uh, journey through the book of Romans. Welcome. I'm glad you guys are with us, um, or with me. I always say us for some reason. Um, but I'm the only one sitting here along with <laughs> uh, me, myself, and I, I think as the expression goes. Um, we have got, in these next two, possibly three segments as we go through the last half of Romans 8 and into chapter 9, these are some complex passages. And, and here's something that I want to encourage you guys with, within this. As we venture through this, um, hopefully going to be getting revelation from the Spirit that God's going to give to me and the words to be able to give through this podcast for you to be able to understand. And even for myself, I mean, these, these can be confusing passages if they are isolated by themselves. And if we are not careful, we can very easily fall victim to a concept in which we believe what we've always thought or we fall victim to believe in what we've always been told and we only see things through the lens of what we believe is written right in front of us instead of taking it in light of the fullness of the text. I was recently talking to a guy and his name is Kenny and I told him I would give him kudos for the quote. So Kenny, if you're listening, this is for you, dude. Um, he talked about the concept of oftentimes we understand things um, to be a truth, but there's way too much evidence that we ignore in order for that to be true. And I think the concept of Romans chapter 8, uh, in the second half and even going into chapter 9, there's a concept that hyper-Calvinists would believe um, in which there's way too much truth to ignore in order for a hyper-Calvinist viewpoint of these passages to be true. And that's not to say that I don't have people in my life that I respect who would be considered Calvinistic in their belief. I, I don't have to agree with somebody fully to be able to respect them. What I do have to see is a love for truth. And that is what this podcast channel is all about. I'm going to probably talk about things today that might make you uncomfortable. And I'm okay with that. Because if you have a love for truth, it's okay for the Spirit to make me uncomfortable in my untruth or in my things that are considered lies. You might not recognize them as lies. You might think they're the truth. But if they don't fit in the fullness of the text, then they cannot be identified as truth. So we're going to get into this. And if you've listened to Romans chapter 8, part 1 that I've gone through, I ended with verse 17, which says this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this is a crucial nugget that we need to carry with us through the rest of chapter eight, because it comes into play later on in chapter eight, as it does in the very next verse that we're going to get into. 
And I went in depth on this one um, in my part one, so I would encourage you to go listen to that because I'm not going to go as much into depth on it right now. But here's the thing. I want you to take notice. Paul includes himself, provided we suffer with him, present tense. So it's not provided we suffered with him um, to prove that we were saved for our glorification. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this is a a truth that kind of resounds to the rest of the text that I must include in the context moving forward. Paul says he has a responsibility to suffer with Christ in this life, faithful to the end, in order to be glorified in the end. And that is crucial because he goes on, he says this, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul is relating this to himself, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now I want you to notice there's three things that he does. One, he uses the word for, which is a linking term to a previous thought. So he ends it with 17 and he says, look, you and I have a job to do here in this life to remain faithful to the end. As Matthew 10, says, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not was saved if it was the proof of their salvation, but it is the security of their salvation or the preservation of it in the end. So he links it to the previous thought that he just established that you and I who are in Christ have a responsibility to suffer with Christ and endure to the end in order to be glorified with him in the end. And I went into Philippians chapter 3, 10 through 14 in order to kind of expound upon that a little bit more. So he links it to it and then he brings up the two terms, sufferings and glory. The same exact thing that he talked about. And he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the things that I'm going to suffer with Christ, here and now, in this lifetime, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to me and you who are in Christ, provided we endure till the end. Now that begs all sorts of questions that I'm going to kind of shelf for the time being. But we're going to keep going. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for it. He's about to bring in the concept of creation um, about how it's an example for us as to how we should be waiting for the return of Christ. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that, but I don't have a ton of time to just kind of hone in on this one concept uh, or on just one singular concept. So I'm going to kind of give a general overview of, I believe, what Paul is talking about. All right. He's using creation as an example to us that we also were subjected to futility so that we might hope in one day that there would be the release from that and a letting go of the bondage of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And he says the creation is the same way. And, and, and so as he goes through this, he talks about we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown eagerly as we wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So I'm going to ask you this question. Are you groaning inwardly for the return of Christ? 
Like you realize that you have this flesh and you've been given the spirit to overcome the flesh, but it's this, it's this very real, tangible battle that we face every single day. And sometimes we, we go through victorious because we've relied on the spirit and the grace that God's given to us to be victorious. And sometimes we fail and we use those failures as lessons so that the next time, hopefully, we don't fail. But it's a very real battle as Galatians 5, 17-18 talks about when it says that we have this flesh and this spirit and there's this subjection unto futility in the flesh but this ability that God's given to us in the spirit to live above it. But the battle is still there. You still have to wrestle. You know, I'm reminded of of Jacob in Genesis 32 when it talks about, and I'm trying to remember the story exactly, um, at the Fort of Yubok at Peniel whenever he's there. And it's, it's always been a fascinating story to me because in this moment, Jacob is so tired of being Jacob. He, he's so tired of futility. He's so tired of being a failure. He's so tired of chasing after or being a heel grabber of the things of this world. And he, he sends all of his family, all of his possessions over this fort of Yubok, which I think is fascinating because it means emptying. He emptied himself of all of these distractions, everything that did not compare to the glory of God. And he stayed there and it says that he wrestled with God. And he said, I have found, and I'm paraphrasing, I have found in you something that is truly satisfying and that I will not let go of until you bless me. Until you change me, until you make me into somebody that I'm not, I will not let go of you. And in that moment, God changed him and he was forever marked. Talks about that he walked with a limp, right? He was forever marked. And then, instead of putting his family and everybody in front of him, as he did prior to, when he was going to go meet Esau, he then went before them. His whole perspective shifted. It was no longer about him. It was about others. And so while I would love, it's like one of my favorite stories to go into, to, to talk about like Luke 9.23, about denying yourself and picking up that cross. God changes that person and, and, and Jacob wrestled with him to say, I'm tired of the futility, give me victory over that. In the same way, we should be longing for the return of Christ so that we no longer have to fight in this battle of the flesh and the spirit in which I believe we can walk victoriously, but we still have the battle. And why Revelation 21 says that he will wipe away every tear, death will be no more, all the former things will have passed and behold, new things have come. Are you longing, inwardly groaning for those things? Are you like Paul when he says in 1 Corinthians 16, toward the very end of it, he says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Are we like Peter, who that expression is one of my favorite Latin expressions, um, according to Christian history, where it talks about that Peter would oftentimes, when he, they would be in times of worship, he would retreat just in tears. Or if there's times that every time that he heard a, a rooster crow, he would break down and weep. And there's this account in Christian history, I believe it was Josephus that gives us this account. I could be wrong on that, but uh, there's this Christian historical story in which Peter one time retreated in tears from the time of gathering, a time of worship, and he was just off by himself as he is often do. And this young Christian went up to him and he asked him, Peter, are you okay? And he just turned and he looked at the guy. And with tears in his eyes, he said, Desidera Domini. Which means I dearly long to be with the Lord. Believer, is that you? Like do you and I, 
in the busyness of our schedule and the things of how we fill up our time so much and distract us, are we willing to go to the Fort of Uboke and empty those things so that we could spend that time to just wrestle with God and say, God, I found in you something that is so satisfying beyond anything else in this world. Do we have that same heart longing as Peter did or as Paul did where we're crying out Maranatha or Desiderio Domini? Do we look to the horizon for the return of our king? Or are we too busy looking to the steps in front of us of this world? And so he talks about that, that groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. Now, I talked about previously um, in chapter 8, where in verse 15 he says, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons. A lot of times people seem to kind of get this concept that we are sons of God and it's been finalized. But that's not what scripture teaches. Notice what Paul says in verse uh, 15 of chapter 8. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He says, you've been given the spirit of adoption. But Paul then says in 23, we wait eagerly for the hope of adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says, it hasn't been finalized yet. I've received the spirit of adoption. I take it by faith. The paperwork has been started, if you will, but it has not been finalized until the day that I die and my body becomes redeemed, which is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, 10 through 14, when he says, by any means possible, I would attain the resurrection of the dead. And notice what he says right before that, that I would fill up the sufferings of Christ. Same exact concept as verse 17. What I get from all this in this apologetic understanding of Scripture, which I'm taking other verses in order to get my understanding of this verse, not just applying and say, oh, I'm a son of God, I've received the adoption, everything's finalized. I understand that the paperwork has been started and the promise has been given. And please pay attention to this because this is very key to understanding the rest of this. The promise has been given. But I have a responsibility within that promise to bring it to completion. And that will make sense as we go through 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 16, going in through 7 chapter 1. Or chapter 7 verse 1. And, and understand this. I've studied this passage at length. And I have probably 40 to 50 cross-references that I have in my notes um, just in this passage, and I've tried to just highlight a handful of them, but there is so much that goes into this. So much. And I don't have that time to go through it. So there might be times where I've, I might seem jumbled. And I'm going, jumping from this point to this point to this point, and, and just understand that that's part of the reason, is because there is so much that goes into this. What I see in this is that I have received the spirit of adoption, but the adoption has not become finalized until the day I die. And this is why Paul says in Philippians 3, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, or you could also translate as the redemption of my body. He even goes on in verse 14, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus hath made me his own. And he says, I want to make sure that in the end, and I'm paraphrasing it now because I can't remember exactly what it says, that I attain the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I want to be awake whenever he comes knocking on that door, which is our job. 
And so we are waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, which is the finalization of the full adoption as sons. Right now, we've just received the spirit of it, or I could say we have just received the promise of it. And God is faithful to uphold his promises if we are faithful within them. And that'll make sense in a little bit. He says, for in this hope, we were saved. You can go into Colossians 1.27 where it talks about it that Jesus is our hope. He is the hope for glory. It's kind of like you know the concept of the get out of jail free card. Well, it's the inverse of that. It's get into heaven free card. That Jesus is that card. And if we are found in him on that last day, then we get in. He is our hope for glory. You can't get in on your own merit. You can't get in on your own apart from Him. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You can't keep the law well enough. You can't keep anything. You cannot be good enough apart from Jesus. Because that's the whole premise of Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is basically stating, if you want to get in any other way, then here's the deal. You have to be perfect, even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. You can't mess up a single time. And the reason being is because Hebrews 10 tells us that God has prepared a body in Christ to be the atonement and the sacrifice for sins. And he will no longer look at the blood of bulls and goats. That was a band-aid, but it was temporary. And he no longer looks at that. He will only look at the blood of his son. So if you are not in Christ, then you will not get in. So in this hope, we were saved. Jesus, the hope of glory, it is to be found in Him on that last day with our names written in the book of life. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The premise that he's stating is if if I have to see something to believe or if I have to see something in order to hope in it, then it's not really hope. Nobody sees the cross necessarily, like physically. None of us who are alive today saw Jesus on that cross. None of us alive today see people glorified in heaven. But it's something we take by faith. And if we take it by faith, trusting and believing that it is true, is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about, then we wait for it with patience. It makes me think of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11 through 12. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope, Until the end. He says, I want you to maintain that anchor of your soul. That hope in the promise that God is faithful to what he has said that he will accomplish in you and through you. And he will do what he has said. And he says in verse 12, so that, I want you to hold that anchor of hope, that full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, check this out, who through faith and patience... Inherit the promises. Notice, it isn't just faith. You've got to exercise patience along with faith. Endurance would be the Greek word that would be used there. Steadfastness. Coupled with your faith in order to, uh, to get the patient or the, uh, the promise in the end. So God's promises are always yes and amen in Christ. So as long as you abide in the person of Jesus Christ until the end. You get the promise because God has said he will uphold his end. And this comes into play still in just a little bit. He says, likewise, in verse 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now I'm going to stop right there, because I want to kind of dissect that verse just a little bit. For one, back in 26, he talks about the Spirit helps us in our weakness. It's the same thing he talks about that the creation was subjected to futility. And we ourselves have a weakness within us. Even as Christians, we have weakness in us. It's called the flesh. The inability to accomplish what God wants us to. But here's the beautiful part of it. Is that God has not left us there. God has given us the Spirit in order to overcome it. I talked about this in chapter 7. And I would highly encourage you to go listen to the podcast over chapter 7. Because there is a complete misunderstanding of the end of Romans chapter 7 today. In the church. When it says in chapter 7 that in my flesh... I don't have the ability to carry out what God wants me to do. A lot of people leave it like that and they say, see, I have the desire to do what's right. And even Paul did, but he didn't have the ability to carry it out. Well, let me just tell you that's heresy. If that's where you believe that God ended it, then that's heresy. Because Philippians 4.13 tells us that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So on the one hand, he says, in my flesh, I don't have the ability to, but praise God that he has given me victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. That when I came into Christ, he bestowed to me the Spirit of God so that I now have the ability to put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk according to the Spirit. It's very simple teaching. But you have to bring the apologetics into it from other passages to ascertain the the truth within chapter 7. And it's the same way. I still have the weakness. That flesh is still there. It still has a voice. But God has given me the ability to overcome that weakness through His grace. Not to overlook the sin, but the ability to overcome the sin. Because the whole concept of what grace is, is simply divine influence and power it's not unmerited favor I, I don't I'm sorry that people lied to you and told you that that is the that's the definition of grace well let me ask you they're not ask you let me tell you there is a aspect to grace that is unmerited but that's not the definition of grace grace is God's power it's his divine influence in your life that is accessible through faith and humility as first Peter 5 5 tells us And so the understanding here is that, yes, we have been subjected in weakness because of the flesh. The body of the flesh, it's it's dead, right? As we talked about in Romans chapter 8 and and the first part. But God has given me the ability to be victorious over that because of the spirit that he has made to dwell in me. Which is why he says, do not gratify the desires of the flesh. You need to walk in the spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, then there can be no condemnation against you. But if you choose to walk in the flesh, then there can be. I would encourage you to go back and listen to Romans um, 8, part 1 on that one. Because I talk about at length about how we misunderstand Romans 8, 1. And we don't actually quantify all the various contexts of that passage and all the other passages within Scripture that details what it is. The other thing I want to talk about is this common verse, man, I'm at 23 minutes, I'm really trying to get through this. Again, sorry if, if, if it feels jumbled, um, but there's literally so much to go through on this. 
He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let me just tell you, that is a conditional statement. It is conditioned upon two things. It is not an unconditional statement that just simply because you are in Christ and you're a Christian, that you can do whatever you want to, but just know that everything's going to work out for you in the end. No, that's not what this is stating. John 14, I believe it's what, verse 12, maybe it's verse 10, somewhere in there, 15, somewhere in that range. He says that, um, uh, uh, man, sometimes I just need the first word, and if I can't get it, I can't remember the rest of it. Um, in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Very simple concept. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So loving God is synonymous with obedience to God. If you say that you love God, but you are not obedient to him, then either you are a liar or the level of love you think you have for him is way down the pecking order. Because you love other things, including yourself, more than you love Him. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. What I'm saying is, is that this verse is conditioned upon for those who love God. Those who are doing what they're told. Those who are obedient to the faith. Those who are walking in the footsteps of faith. Those who are walking in the light as He is in the light. All things will work together for your good. But if you're not loving God as you ought, then this promise is null and void for you. His mercy might overcome and it might actually work things for your good. But don't think that it was because of you. This is a conditional promise that he says, if you love me and if you walk in the purpose that I've given to you in Christ, if you are doing what I'm asking you to do and calling you to do, then I will work everything out for your good. That's the promise. But too many times I think we look at this passage and we say it as an unconditional promise, absent of our responsibility within it. But you don't have to look far in Scripture to know that there is conditions to promises all throughout. And it's no different in the New Covenant. I even give you an example as one of my favorite passages to bring up for it, I believe it's in Acts 27, where Paul's on this ship, and this ship, you know, the storm comes up, and they're, they're about to all die, right? Well, Paul goes and he says, hey, I've got some good news. I uh, was praying, and, and an angel, the God that I serve, appeared to me, and he says that um, we're all going to be okay. About eight verses later, it's getting pretty bad. And there's these guys who are deciding to try to lower the lifeboats that they had. And they're trying to jump ship. And Paul begins adamantly saying, what are you guys doing? Unless you remain in the boat, you cannot be saved. Now I want you to, sh to, to notice something. The promise was there. The condition was as well. You must Remain in the boat to receive the promise. And it's no different with our salvation. We must remain in Christ until the end. And I know some who might not have been following previous podcasts as I've gone through, you know, um, you know, Galatians chapter 6, or I've gone through entire book of Hebrews, or I've gone through James, or I've gone through several other passages. It comes up all the time because it's littered throughout all scripture. 
you might be thinking like, hold up a second, I've always been told that, that once I was saved, I've, I'm always saved. Well, let me just tell you, that is a heresy that was brought into the church as it's perceived today, because I do believe the security of Christ. That's a heresy that was brought into the church about 400 years ago. And it's now been perpetuated, and you know why? Because it feels good and it sounds good. But the reality is, the promise is there, but so is the condition to remain in Him. And this is why John 15 says, that if you remain in me and I in you. And so I want us to understand that in verse 28, it is a conditional statement that you and I can take solace in that if we are obedient to what God is calling us to do and loving Him and walking in the purpose that He's given to us, that everything will work out for our good. One way or another, it'll work out for our good. Not to hone in on that too much, we're going to keep going. He says this, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, um, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now this, this is where this passage can get a little hairy. Because if I only hone in on 29 through 30, and I only look at those passages, and I might bring in a few little passages here and there, I could come away with some pretty erroneous beliefs. But the reality is, is I can't do that. I have to take all of Scripture in its context. And I'm going to share you a couple examples as to why that's so important. Um, and this is where that quote comes in. There's way too much other things that have to be ignored for this to be true. So I'm going to give you an example. And let me pull out my phone here so just so it's a little bit quicker. In Psalm 121, 1 through 3, here's what it states. Let me get to it real quick. He says, I lifted my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Now, it's an interesting thing that he states. He says, basically, I'm the Lord of heaven and of earth. And, and, and I will not let you be moved. And we take a lot of solace in that. And we should. There's, there should be a lot of solace that we take in understanding that God is able Okay? To not let us be moved. But here's the interesting thing. In Psalm 15, same author, he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Well, isn't that fascinating? On the one hand, we see the promise that God is able to not let us be moved. But on the other hand, we see the condition that God says, you need to do these things in order to not be moved. To tap into my ability. I really hope you're catching when I'm stepping in here. As the expression goes, I hope you're smelling when I'm stepping in. I could even give you a New Testament one. Going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here's what he says. In a very um, beautiful passage that I think you and I who are in Christ, need to take a lot of solace and comfort and hope in. He says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
Now we have the promise, but I want you to take note of the condition. In 1 Thessalonians, same chapter, same author, chapter 3. I'm sorry, same book, different chapter, chapter 3, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Did you notice the condition? He says, I need you to be doing what you're told. To love his saints and to walk in faith and to keep the faith. So that you may establish or be established blameless in holiness. The very thing that he said that God will do now has a condition. Because I've taken the fullness of the text into consideration in trying to understand the text. If that's not enough, let me read Philippians 1, 9-10. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Are you catching this? We oftentimes will preach the promise absent of the condition. We put everything in God's basket instead of realizing that God's also saying you have a responsibility in this basket. This is why it says in Philippians 2, 13-14, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He says you have a job to do within your salvation. A responsibility to do as you are told. I hate it when, when Hebrews 13.5 is used out of his context. When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we use this as a passage in our prayers and our counseling. It says, hey, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Let me just tell you, that's an Old Testament quote taken from Deuteronomy. I believe it's in 31 that it's taken from. In which God gives that promise. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But what we don't understand is that right before it, he talks about being strong and courageous, careful to observe all that I've commanded you. For I will not leave you nor forsake you. And then like 10 verses later. Moses is talking to God, and God tells him, he says, These people will will whore after foreign gods, and they will forsake me. And then he says this, and I will forsake them. Well, isn't that fascinating? I mean, we could even go to 2 Chronicles 15.2, where it talks about that if you seek me, then you will find me. But if you forsake me, I will forsake you. So what is Hebrews 13.5 actually talking about? It says that when you put your hand to the plow in faith and you do what you're supposed to do, that God will never leave you high and dry. When you don't put your faith and trust in money, which is the context of the passage, go read it. Hebrews 13.5, go read it. When you do not put your trust and faith in money, but you choose to walk in obedience and faith towards God, trusting in the unseen that God will come through and uphold His promise and He will take care of you if you seek His kingdom first and His righteousness, then He says, then I will add all these things to you, the needs that you have in this life to carry out my will. I will take care of you. Trust me on that. He says, I won't leave you high and dry. That's the context of the passage. But we've lost the context because we don't take the context of the passage, nor others into inclusion. And it's no different in this one. Listen to what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn. Notice the timeline that's being established. It's Jesus as the firstborn and all those before Jesus, not after. 
We miss this concept today because we don't take into consideration the tense that is used in this. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, and all those who are before him is who he's referencing right here. And it was all those so that God could bring about his plan in Christ to make him the firstborn among many brothers moving forward. That he would be preeminent, that he would be the Christ, that he would be the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, and the way unto the Father. Everything that God did in the Old Testament was to bring about and orchestrate His predestined plan for the beginning to bring about His Son. And Paul is about to make this argument to state, if, there was, um, if God was able to do that, then you and I should have a whole lot of hope to know that He will be faithful to uphold His end of the promise. This is what's being stated. We can like it or not, or we can choose to ignore it. We can choose to go into what we've always thought or believed and ignore all the other scriptures like Hebrews 6, 4-6, or Hebrews 10, 26-31. We could ignore the Romans 8, 17, which is established in the context moving forward into the glorification of the saints. We could ignore 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. We could try to bring up all these justifications to say they don't really mean what it seems they mean. We could try to ignore that all we want to, or we could just understand that we're basking in the understanding that God is faithful to uphold His promise and His end of the deal if we are faithful to uphold ours. He says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. Notice the past tense. This is not a message for us who are in Christ today, though we can draw hope from it. But understand, he said, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. We've already received from Paul that there is a condition to glorification for the saint. Like, that's, that's, that's undisputable. We, we can't go back and be like, well, Paul didn't really mean what he said. When it says exactly what he meant. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Cause and effect. Paul's including himself in the condition to the promise of glorification. So what is he talking about here? Well, you could even go to Matthew 22, verse 14. If I'm going to say here that every single person that he predestined, he called, and every single person that he called, he justified, then I'm making Jesus a liar. Matthew 22, verse 14, when he says, many are called, but few are chosen. Wait, what? Did you just... Talk about and say that many are called, but there's actually few of those called who are chosen? Well, that doesn't seem to jive with this. Rather, I can understand this, that in the Old Testament, that God did what needed to be done in order to bring about Christ. And that is why everything here is past tense and establishing Jesus as the firstborn. Listen to what Paul goes on to say right after this. Because this whole concept is hope in the promise. And the Old Testament of what God did in the Old Testament should give us reason to hope, but also reason to fear, lest any of us should have failed to reach it. Here's what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God worked about his plan in Christ, should we not take comfort in knowing that he can do the same for us? You see, Paul is establishing now this transference from these promises that were done in the old to now what we have in the new in Christ. And this is why it's so important to understand in 2 Corinthians, um, I think it's 
chapter 1, verse 20, where it says that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ. God is faithful to uphold supernaturally to the mystery of His power and His will. He is faithful to uphold His end of the promise. But it is beyond dispute that the contract that we have, this is what the Greek word diatheke means in this new covenant, it is a contract between God and us. And He has made that contract with His Son as the mediator between the two. And He says, I am faithful to uphold everything that I've promised to give in My Son. But we must be faithful as well to the end. He goes on, he says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Notice the terminology is no longer for those whom He foreknew, He predestined. It's now it's us. It's we. It's the saints in the New Testament who can extract from God's faithfulness in the old. We can now extract that from that for the new. But in the same way that we can take hope and consolation in that, he also says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right after Paul warns about him being disqualified if he doesn't keep running this race. He says this in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, meaning the things that took place to the Old Testament saints, meaning the Jews, God's people back then who are no longer his people because they've been cut off, as Romans 11 talks about. We'll get to that someday soon. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we who are in Christ, Paul includes himself, might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He says those things that took place were examples for us. And in this passage in Romans 8, God has given us the shining example of hope in my promise because I'm faithful to uphold my end of it. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul has given us we should fear. Because just as God was faithful to uphold his promise for the good, he's also faithful to uphold his promise for the not so good. And we need to learn from that. He goes on and he says this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with him get, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now this is another hijacked term by the Calvinists that I believe have made it to say something that it doesn't. Electos is the Greek word that's used there and it means the select or the chosen, the choicest, the best of its kind. And here's why I say that it's been hijacked, because we think that it's just God has chosen certain people to be saved and certain people he's chosen to go to hell, based off of Romans chapter 9, which we'll get into in just a little bit, whom I believe that as a precursor, Romans 9 is again referencing under the old covenant in order to bring about Christ. And I'll dissect that when I go through Romans chapter 9. But this word means the choices of its kind, meaning it's, it's the, when you go to the meat market and you've got your, uh, your ribeyes and you've got your top sirloins and you've got your filet mignons and then you've got some of those lower quality meats that are there, they're still part of the meat. 
but you have the choicest of those. And it's not that they were necessarily chosen, it's the ones who have a higher degree of value or a higher degree of admiration and affection towards. And I believe that that is simply the church. It's people who have been brought into Jesus Christ. God says, yes, I am showing partiality because I care about them as my beloved to a higher degree than I even do the world. And you might think, well, hold up a second, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality according to appearances in certain aspects, but he most certainly does show partiality. This is why he talks about that men are to be the ones who are in leadership, but women are not. That's partiality. He even commands partiality amongst us in Galatians 6, 9-10, through 10, when he talks about, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. You see, there's partiality there. We just have to discern which ones we're supposed to be partial to in light of heaven and the word of God and which ones we're not. All are equal partakers of grace, but there is an established pattern that God has that the man is to be the head of the home. And that's, we can't argue with that. People try today, but you can't argue with it unless you want to argue with God. But this concept of elect is a concept of which I believe God is stating, I have the ones who are the choicest ones who I look on with a higher affection and esteem because they are the ones who are in Christ. It's not that I elected them to get saved. And the rest of mankind, the majority of mankind, I've just said, well, you know what? I didn't elect you and I chose you actually to be condemned to hell. Because it doesn't make sense with what Paul tells Timothy. By the way, same author, Romans and Timothy, in verse 4. I'll start in three. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that doesn't seem to fit. If God desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, then why in the world do we seem to have this concept of elect in which God just simply said, Oh, I desire for you to be saved. But you... I don't desire for that. You're condemned to hell because that's what I created you for. It doesn't even fit. And that's where we get these, these branches off of it to where it's like, oh, man doesn't have free will. Man, and let me just tell you, I've got people who are Calvinistic in their faith and their belief and their doctrine that I respect because I believe they love truth. But I just don't agree with their truth on, some, on many levels. And... and I might not have perfect oneness with them, but I can have unity with them. You, I mean, you could even look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where he says this, For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. It says very clearly right there what elect means. That there is the choicest of meats in which God looks upon as a higher level because those who believe have come into Christ, but God's desires for the whole meat market. His desires to go into the whole meat section and say, guys, I want you all in here. But it's only those who come in through Christ who I consider as part of the elect or the choicest of meats. It's not that God predetermined who was going to be saved and who wasn't. It's God predetermined that those who would come into Christ would be the ones who would be saved. But the free will of man to accept him or to reject him is there. 
I remember getting into a conversation with the Calvinist about Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, in which he went and he read it. And I remember it was like he was reading it for the first time. And I was so surprised because I was like, dude, like you're holding to this belief, but you haven't even put into the equation some of these passages like Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And as a guy that doesn't believe in free will, he doesn't believe, he believes we're all dead in our trespasses and God has to choose me or has to choose himself for me because I can't do it. And that's a hyper-Calvinist viewpoint. And so I'm having this conversation with this guy and this guy, he reads through Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 and he says, well, well maybe, maybe what God's saying is that... there." There's this, there, there can be these people who come into church and they hear the gospel message and they reject it. And, and so there's no chance to bring them unto repentance because they're rejecting the gospel message. I'll say, well, hold, hold up a second. You've already told me adamantly that there is no free will. I can't reject God's message because what you're saying now is that God has determined something because of my free will. But you've already established that you don't believe that man has free will. Which one is it? And what I'm going to tell you is I believe that God desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth because that's what His Word says. That God wants everybody to come in as one of the choicest of the meats through Jesus Christ. To be part of His elect. But your free will can determine that. To choose to love him or to not. He goes on and he says, It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, or tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the thing. You and I are not mentioned in this list. It's things that are external. Things that are oppressive. Things that are externally done to us. That if we choose to walk in Christ and remain in Him, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It does not end with nothing can separate us from the love of God. I hear it all the time. People say, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, let me just tell you, that's not true. For one, the rest of the verse goes on to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing external that can pull me from and pry me out of that, the love of God, the hand of the love of God. Nothing can just pull his fingers up and snatch me out of it. It's not possible. But there's something that's not mentioned in this list. It's you and it's me. And you might think, well, come on now. That's, that actually doesn't make any sense that I could walk away from the love of God. His love is unconditional. Is it? Is God's love unconditional? It means it has absolutely zero degree of condition involved with it. Let me tell you this. In Jude 121, here's what he says. Let me just start in 19. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, check this out, keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait. What did he just say? 
He just gave a qualification to remaining in God's love. And how do we do it? We remain in the person of Jesus Christ because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now you might say, oh, okay, well, let me give you some other verses. Because God's unchanging. In Nehemiah 1.5 and in Psalm 25.10 and in Jeremiah 16.5, you could also go to Daniel 9.4. You could also even go again to the New Testament in John 15.9 where he uses the word abide, which is the Greek word meno, which means to remain. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love. That's Jesus, New Testament. But all these other ones says that the steadfast love of the Lord is for those who remember to keep his testimonies and who keep his covenant. Paraphrase. Go look it up. That's a condition. In fact, you won't find the word unconditional anywhere in Scripture towards the love of God. You see, these are expressions that have been brought into the church that do not find their root in Scripture, but only in the perception of man. The concept of predestination, as it's oftentimes taught today, in that God has his elect in which he's chosen certain people to go to heaven, and he's ordained for certain people to go to hell, and we don't have free will. That's perceptions of man that has now infiltrated the church as doctrine, but it's not rooted in truth. You can find, you know, the concept of unconditional love. Perceptions of man, not rooted in truth. Because I can give you at least six verses, Old Testament and New Testament, that say there is a condition. Now, I believe, you know, going into Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul says that I'm praying for you to understand the love that God has for you and how high and deep and wide it is, I believe it's immense. And I believe that even... Like, the only way we can actually understand the love of God, which is what Paul is praying for, is through the Spirit. Because I believe it is vast. It is huge. It's as deep as a valley is and as high as the skies are. But here's the deal. It still has a limit. I oftentimes equate it to the deep sea. The deep sea is considered the parts of the ocean that we cannot explore because of our natural limitations. We can't go there. And it's increased over the years because of uh, those limitations kind of getting lessened because of technology. But there's still roughly about 90 to 95% of the ocean that we've never explored. And we consider it the deep sea. We've never even touched it. And I believe that that's how the love of God is. But you know, no matter how much we explore, no matter how much we remove those limits and we continue to increase in technology to be able to, to study out the deep sea... No matter where you go, there still is a limit to it. So therefore, if I'm to understand that even if there's one slightest condition to God's love, I cannot define it as unconditional. And so my point in this is, I want us to understand that some of these verses that we have always grown up with to understand in a certain way, or maybe that we've read through it and it's like, wow, in my reading of this one chapter, this seems to make sense. Our job is to study to show ourselves approved before God. We need to make sure that we're incorporating the fullness of the text into our understanding of this because it will not contradict. It will not, and and don't think because you have one verse that seemingly says something contradictory. You need to understand, I need to understand 
the fullness of truth. And as according to as I see it right now, I cannot quantify this concept of hyper-Calvinism brought in by some man at the end of the 15th uh, or the end of the 16th century. I cannot believe that that is truth because there is way too much other things that I have to ignore and set to the side or try to do a song and dance to justify myself around it to believe that hyper-Calvinism is true. And so my hope and my goal and my, my aim today was to try to take us through this passage to show us the context of it and to bring other things into question so that we might look at it and say, huh, those are actually really good questions. I need to study it out more. That's my hope. I'm not asking you to believe me. What I'm asking you to do is to take some of these nuggets and go and start digging to go find more. That's our job. As 2 Timothy 2.15 says, study to show yourself approved before God. A workman who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. Is God's love unconditional? I don't believe so. But if you do, go prove me wrong. Is there a concept of predestination in the elect in which God simply just chooses those who are going to go to heaven and those who are going to go to hell? I don't believe so. But if I'm wrong, go prove me wrong. And I'm going to tell you, Romans 9 doesn't prove it. Romans 9 will only prove what was done under the old covenant to bring about Jesus Christ for the establishment of the new. Which is why Romans 10 follows that. And you might think, well, that's, that's rocket science there. You know, 10 follows 9. Yeah, go read chapter 10 and go see why now Paul is talking about Romans 9 of everything in a past tense form to bring about Jesus Christ so that in Romans 10, I believe it's in verse 10, he talks about, so anyone then who believes in Christ can be saved. And notice, anyone, not just the elect, but anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. So if all these things, if you're like, man, Dwight, you're off your rocker. I'm going to ask you, it's like, this is what I currently believe from hours and hours and hours and hours of unbiased study. Because frankly, I don't care what the truth says. I, I, I don't. I want to believe what he says and that's it. I don't have a preference to be like, well, I want truth to say this. All I care about is that I'm in the truth and I know the truth and I live by the truth according to the word of God. Not according to my preconceived notions, preconceived ideas, things I've always been taught or things I want to believe. Trust me, I want to believe that when I got saved that I am now secured in Christ until the end no matter what I do. Once saved, always saved. I want to believe that. That would be so much easier. I want to believe that all my past, present, future sins were wiped away at the moment of salvation and that I'm never going to give an account for anything before God. Those, those are great. I want to believe that. But I can't. Because it's not what the Word teaches. So my challenge to you is to don't just take things at face value for what it says, but to study to show yourself approved before God. And to not just take what you've always thought, or what you've always known, or what you've always been told that makes sense. But study the word in its fullness and ask God for revelation and understanding. And like I said, if I'm wrong, I want to hear from you. Because I don't want to believe something just because 
I want to believe what the truth says. But just know that I've put in a lot of work in trying to study out these topics. And when I say hours, I'm not talking about 20 hours. I'm not talking about 50 hours. I'm talking about there was a point in my life in which for a handful of years I studied 7 to 9 hours a day. And I'm not just talking about I just read. I'm talking about I studied. I went into Hebrew. I went into Greek. I cross-referenced. I did all kinds of word studies. I did all kinds of studying through the Word of God to find answers to these truths. And God was faithful to show me revelation on so many things. So if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. But it needs to come from a place of humility and from the foundation of truth. Not just perception and not just feeling and not just with thoughts. So my encouragement, take these nuggets and start digging. And trust and know that God is faithful to uphold His end. He's proven that. He is faithful to uphold His end. But our job is to be faithful to the end so that one day we can hear those precious words of God. Well done, my good and faithful servant. He didn't make me do it. I chose to be faithful to the end and remain in His Son to receive the promises that God has given to me. I cannot jump ship and think that I'm going to get the promises. Y'all be blessed.